When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hello, everybody. I am Galina Limarenko, and today I am delighted to present All for One, All for One, and One for All, public seminar series on mental health in academia and society. All for One and One for All talks will shed light on and discuss mental health issues in academia across all levels, from student to faculty, as well as in wider society. Seminars are held online once per month on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Swiss time or 11 a.m. EST and are free for all to attend. Speakers include academics, organizations, and health professionals whose work focuses on mental health. Live Q&A sessions will be held after each talk. For live webinar schedule, please visit Lashua Lab website section, upcoming webinars, and also follow us on Twitter at Lashuel Lab. A brief note on the logistics of today, we are going to have main session with our main speaker for about 40 to 45 minutes, which will be followed by the Q&A from the audience. So please post your questions and comments, both in the question and the comment section or chat section of our Zoom call. And I think we are ready to start. Okay, welcome everyone. It gives me a great pleasure to introduce our guest for today. Dr. Rebecca Lester is a medical psychological anthropologist with a research focus on embodiment, intersubjectivity, and cultural practice of self-cultivation. She's primarily interested in how people understand and experience existential distress, the institutions and practices that arise to address this distress, and what these experiences, institution, and practices can tell us about local morale, phenomenological and epistemological words. Dr. Lester is also a licensed clinical social worker, specializing in working with eating disorders, mood disorders, trauma, self-harm, gender sexuality issues, and relationship challenges. 
She's currently the president of the Society of Psychological Anthropology and editor-in-chief of the journal Culture, Medicine, and Psychiatry. Recently, she won the 2020 Victor Turner Prize in ethnographic writing for her book, Famished Eating Disorders and Failed Care in America, which we would highly recommend. She also recently authored a paper with Adam Johnson on mental health in academia, hacks for cultivating and sustaining well-being. We're looking forward to discussing this paper and more of your work, Dr. Lester, on mental health issues today. We're honored to have you with us and grateful to you for making the time to join us today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. And Okay, so as Hilal just mentioned, um, you focus on some really important issues such as eating disorders. So can you tell us a little bit more what you're really interested in? Yes, so I'm interested in the ways in which people come up against periods of their life where, where what previously seemed to make sense to them doesn't make sense anymore. And I think many of us have probably had this experience where you get to a place where you're like, what am, what am I doing here? What is the point of anything? And I'm interested in how people navigate those, those periods of their lives. And there are different kinds of cultural resources that people can, can go towards. Some are more constructive than others, but um, I've become interested in how people take up, especially bodily practices that through which they are trying to make sense of who they are and what their purpose is. And so that's how I got interested in, in eating disorders as a practice. But within that, of course, I'm interested in then how do we as society respond to um, circumstances that can arise because of these, these sorts of behaviors? And how does that shape our understandings of what makes a good person and what, what is the meaning of life? So kind of all the intersections of, of those elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this part is really interesting to me, how you are able to reconcile such complexity of different areas in one coherent uh, uh, topic, basically. It's challenging. It is challenging. I think this is some, a place where anthropology gives us a lot of tools, um, and particularly psychological and medical anthropology, which is my focus, gives us a range of kind of different disciplinary tools that we can draw on to try to try to engage these kinds of very complex issues. So it also, um, I would imagine, would depend on the different uh, stages of life of person, the way you have to approach these different issues. And can you tell us a little bit more, maybe differences between uh, different life stages that can be? Sure. Well, I work a lot with, or I have in the past with my research, certainly um, with adolescents as well as adults in different kinds of phases of their lives. And it's, it's very important, of course, to have an understanding of kind of human development and how that can affect the way that people are experiencing challenges about meaning in their lives. And also kind of what their resources might be or what they have that they can meaningfully access to try to navigate periods of, of questioning. So it's, it's helpful to have that, that kind of background as well. And certainly my clinical training helps with that a bit also. Uh, so your recent book is Famished, Eating Disorders and Failed Care in America. Can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been interested in eating disorders for, for a really long time for a variety of reasons, including personal experience, which was a big motivator for wanting to engage this topic. 
um, not just anthropologically, but from a number of different disciplines um, kind of at the same time. So the book is centered on uh, the ethnography of a particular eating disorder clinic in the United States. But, but with that as the core, I really am using that to explore bigger questions about how do we how do we decide what an illness is and how we draw the boundaries around it and whose moral responsibility it is to address it. Um, and in the case of the United States, it's very difficult to engage anything around mental health without talking about our health insurance system of managed care. And so I was very interested in how all of these kind of very complex negotiations about, about illness and wellness and recovery and resilience and, and all of that was, was framed within this circumstance of managed care that was in its own way dictating the parameters of, of these questions. So I got interested in how both clinicians and clients were navigating all of these things that would often set up double binds for people where there was really no way to, to I don't want to say win, but there's really no way to progress healthfully through it for clients and kind of the effects of that that had for people over time. You mentioned a, a few of terms like resilience. So, what is the roles of any of those definitions actually play in our understanding of mental health and illness? Yes, they're hugely important and they're hugely variable, right? In terms of what we think of as illness, this is something that maybe many of us are, you know, familiar with the idea that illness is culturally constructed in terms of what categories we put things in. Um, but I'm also interested in how recovery is conceptualized because that is the driver for a lot of clinical intervention. If we think about, you know, where we want to get somebody to, that's going to dictate a lot of the kinds of um, practices and, and remedies that we bring to bear. So it's super important for us to understand how recovery is conceptualized and what kinds of moral um, power is enfolded in that, that construct. Um, resilience is a tricky word, and I know it's been critiqued a lot from, from different angles. Um, the way I think about it is, is kind of somebody's own commitment to not accept a defeat that is structurally imposed and a willingness or a, a kind of drive to continue to try to find solutions, even when they're not readily available. That, of course, is not all on the individual to, to do. We can't put that all on individual people to somehow muster the, the wherewithal to do that all the time. But that's kind of how I, I think of it as someone who's kind of staying in there and, and, and a drive to figure out some kind of pathway through. What role does our culture play in the in deciding what is exactly is acceptable or not acceptable? Yes. So, I mean, it's a huge determinant. I mean, it is really the deciding factor because they are, you know, what is considered to be acceptable or unacceptable is culturally variable. We know this from, you know, lots of lots of anthropological and other kinds of studies. And so what we find is that who gets to make those determinations is, is extremely important and who, whom they favor is also extremely important. And generally where those lines between acceptable and unacceptable are drawn serve the, the interests of the dominant groups. 
they're the ones who are the one or who are making the making the determination about what categories exist. And so um, we have to really keep that in mind that as much as we may feel like they've been naturalized for us, that they are cultural productions. And that means that they're changeable. Another concept that you put forward in your work is the topic of agency. And that is really interesting for me. So I was wondering, what is the significance of agency of individual, but also of healthcare professionals and the wider society who contribute to maintaining the mental health of, of us as a community? Yes, this is such a critical issue in the study of and treatment of mental health issues. Um, and I think it's important to start off by saying that nobody chooses to have a mental illness. You know, nobody chooses to become schizophrenic or depressed or have an eating disorder. This is not a choice that people are making. At the same time, people can and do make choices and exert agency in ways that can affect the, the onset or the intensity or the progress or the resolution of these issues. So it's a very complex situation that it's not all one or the other. And I think we tend to, to uh want to make it one or the other, that either this person is responsible for their situation or they're completely not responsible at all. And it's, you know, pure biology or genetics or whatever. And of course, humans are much more complex than that. So I think um, understanding that that the way that agency unfolds is, is this interplay of things that, that are not choices, but that we can and do make choices that can affect the outcomes of things. And so when, as mental health professionals, we have to engage clients, I think, in this way, first of all, as people and not as illnesses, that they are human beings who are struggling with a particular set of issues, um, many of which are not under their control, and yet helping them to see what aspects of it are something that they have agency over or with, that they can make inroads to make their situation better. So it, it takes a lot of sensitivity to this kind of nuance. Great. Uh, I'd like to make a bit of a transition from eating disorders to mental health in academia. And maybe one question that comes into mind, I read some studies where they said, you know, especially in the context of COVID uh, mm-hmm. period, that there are actually increasing number of students exhibiting, you know, sort of eating disorders. So can you tell us a little bit more about sort of eating disorders in academia and how do you see the interplay between you know mental health and eating disorders yes yeah, so eating disorders in academia so we we I hesitate because the statistics that we have about eating disorders, there's a lot of critique that could be given to some of them, but I won't get into all of that. We do know that young women of college age tend to be overrepresented as people who develop eating disorders are at very high risk. So of course, in a college situation um, and men, of course, that's an increasing um, issue as well. So young women and men are at higher risk for developing eating disorders. In the situation of academia, um, there's an intensified pressure on performance and measurement and ranking and 
you know, your entire future rests on how you do in your major and, you know, this kind of um, pressure for overwork that a lot of university students feel. There can be financial pressures. So there's a very kind of concentrated pressures on people right at the time that they're most vulnerable, not only to eating disorders, but other mental health concerns as well during this time period. And you mentioned COVID and, oh my goodness, I mean, as a, as a university professor, I've seen this just among the students that I've encountered um, eating disorders or no, this, you know, uh, it's, it's been incredibly difficult for all of us, but especially for young people, I think, who are trying to kind of launch their own lives and figure out who they are. They're in this period of massive transition and then everything kind of shuts down, um, but the pressures don't stop. So all of that together has produced a really difficult situation for a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. So for, for most students, you know, suffering from eating disorders or mental health is always the feeling of, um, you know, stigma, shame, uh, sometimes feeling of unworthy of care or, or lack of motivation. And many of these sort of prevents people from seeking support. And I was just wondering in the context of your work with individuals with eating disorders and maybe also students with mental health, Sort of, you know, how do you help them uh, overcome those feelings and reach out to to get the support they need? Yeah, great question. It's so difficult. There's still so much stigma around mental health issues. It's better than it was, say, 20 years ago, but it's still very difficult. And eating disorders, even within mental health concerns, carry additional stigma. Mm -hmm. So the way, like, with, with, with clients or students that I've worked with who are having struggles, but they're, they're resistant or reluctant to go and seek help, or they don't think that it's that big of a deal, or maybe, you know, um, I'm not sick enough to use resources. Um, you know, it's helpful. I have found it helpful to draw a parallel with them between a mental health condition and a physical health condition, you know, using, using an example, like, well, if you had a broken arm, would you sit at home and try to fix it yourself? Or would you go to somebody whose job it is to know how arms break and like how to fix them? You know, it's very simple kinds of analogies like that, that seem to help people wrap their heads around the fact that like, oh, I feel miserable and horrible and I can't function. And there are people who can help me and I don't have to live like this every day. But it can be very difficult, especially if they have parents who are um, have certain kind of preconceptions around mental health issues or seeking help or friends or, you know, that can be very difficult. A lot of times people don't want other people to know that they are seeking therapy. Um, so the, the best I think we can do as clinicians or as faculty is to normalize that as much as possible, that this is part of overall health. It is just part of maintaining your health. And there are people who know how to help you and you don't have to suffer. Yeah, we're much more comfortable showing our physical injuries than our mental scars. So uh, I think it takes a special uh, training to be able to overcome those feelings and be comfortable in having uncomfortable conversations with people around you. I was also curious, so because how do you prepare your students who have to go and you know and work in this field in terms of you know just mentally and in terms of also how to approach these people and how you know all the sensitivities around this topic. So, do you mean my field anthropology or my field? Correct. In- yeah. Oh, anthropology. Okay. 
that is an, a, a very important issue that is starting to get some more attention in the field, but it, there's so much work that needs to be done. So in, in anthropology, for those of you who might not be familiar, um, as a graduate student, uh, a student will develop usually their own research project and you know, design it from top to bottom, go somewhere else away from where they live to do the research for a year, year and a half, something like that. Um, by themselves. They're there doing their work. Um, and so what that means is that people are far from their support systems. They're out of their usual frame of reference. There, it could be, you know, a lot of culture shock or adjustment going on. And a lot is riding on how the research goes. And these are young people. So they've got a lot of like stuff that kind of comes together to make it a, a difficult situation. And on top of that, in anthropology, there's increasing pressure to like do something more intense or do something more extreme or more, ed you know, edgier than somebody else has done because you need to make your mark and you need to get noticed among all the people who are out for jobs. So it's a, it's a complicated uh, soup of things. So the way that, you know, I try to prepare graduate students is to start that conversation early about this is hard. It's okay that it's hard. Um, there are ways to make it easier. And there are ways to make sure that supports are in place if you need them. Um, because I think, you know, we should let students do the things they're interested in, but with a plan in place for how are they going to stay in touch at home? How are they going to stay in touch with their advisor? If they have a therapist already, how is that relationship going to continue when they're abroad? Um, or do they need to figure out something else? If uh, things get really difficult and they need to leave the field for a while. What's the plan for doing that? And to normalize that before they go so that it's, you know, it's a, a somewhat easier conversation if something happens while they're there. And I know, you know, I've been a graduate student, so I know how daunting it can be to think about saying to your advisor, I'm having trouble and I don't know if I can keep doing my research like that sounds impossible probably to a graduate student, but if you've had that conversation already before they go to the field and they know that this is not a referendum on their capacities as a researcher or their, you know, moral integrity as a person or any of that, then it, it helps, you know, if and when something comes up, it makes it easier for that conversation to continue. That's a very interesting approach. I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the maybe the scale of the mental health, you know, sort of problem that we have in academia today, and, and also in terms of the need for taking a more holistic approach toward addressing this problem. So if we look at the statistics, I mean, they tell us that as many as 40% of the students may meet the criteria of probable mental health problem then there are no hard numbers, but the, the, the few studies that have been done also suggest that, you know, when we talk about faculty, we're also talking about 30% of the faculty. And again, I, I haven't seen, you know, very solid studies on this. It remains a topic that is under study. And if you look at the general population, you know, studies on general population, we're also about 35%. So if we look at the university ecosystem between students, staff, and this, it means every one of us on a daily basis is connected with someone who's facing these challenges. Right. I wonder if you could reflect on this a little bit from, uh, you know, what do you think about the scale? 
And the current approach is in trying to address this, most of which thus far have focused really more on the student population. I mean, we're beginning to see, you know, some increasing attention to faculty, but also then when we look at staff, uh, nobody addresses their concerns, you know, when it comes to mental health. Right. I mean, the scale is daunting. It is, it is far bigger than anybody, than most people anticipated when some of these numbers started to come out. Um, I mean, it is, it is pretty astounding to think about how many people in academia are struggling on a daily basis. And there have been attempts to try to address it, as you've said. I know at least on the student front, there have been, you know, at least in my university, I can speak at Washington University in St. Louis, they've expanded their student health services. They've recently added telehealth as an option, which the students have been lobbying for forever. There's groups and supports and like those kinds of things. But honestly, it feels a little paltry in comparison to the magnitude of the problem. Um, and for faculty, I mean, it's even less. There's there's talk about it, certainly, but, you know, it's it's like, here's a mindfulness, you know, seminar, which is great. Mindfulness is fantastic. But when we're talking about, you know, significant mental health challenges that are also systemically amplified, then that sort of thing is, is not not enough. We need we need more than that. Um and part of the problem, I think, is there seems to be, this is just my opinion, that there's a disconnect between recognizing on the one hand, we have this massive problem that people are stressed, depressed, anxious, it's impairing functioning, it's just not great for a lot of people in academia. And at the same time, there's all this increased pressure to, um, you know, jump in the rankings and ramp up, you know, become a center of excellence and, you know, stand out, you know, to the next level of, of, you know, research and all this kind of stuff that the, the universities are experiencing pressure from their boards of trustees and donors and whomever else. So these things are happening together, which is, can be very, um, counterproductive, or at least they don't talk to each other very well. They, they're working at cross purposes a lot. And so I think that's a big problem of what we're seeing today in academia. So you, you made a, a statement that caught my attention. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. And, and the idea, as I think it said, is by targeting inter interventions at the level of the individual, we frame mental health concerns in academia as a personal issue. Right. And um, so I'm wondering is how do we move also from focusing on mental health as an individual issue? And that seems to be an issue of only support services. You know, so typically the response in academia is, you know, we have a mental health problem with students. We need to have more counselors. We need to have to, to a point where we began to re-examine this in a holistic view by looking at the circumstances and the, fa and, 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 and the factors that shape all aspects of students and faculty, for that matter, experience in mental health within a university. In other words, instead of just looking, you know, what might be the triggers that make somebody unwell, you know, how do we make sure people are doing better or prevent such triggers? Mm -hmm. So I was curious about your thoughts on, on, on where we are sort of in, in, on this issue. Yes, I think, you know, absolutely there is a, a 
attribution to the individual uh, as the site where this problem is happening, right? And while certainly there are individual components to it, um, it's the entire culture of academia. I mean, it, it really is. And I love academia. It's where I, you know, spend my life, but it's the culture of academia that intensifies and amplifies struggles that people may have. And it's this the culture of overwork and the culture of if you're not exhausted, you're not doing enough. And this kind of constant productivity to, to a rate that is much higher than in previous generations. You know, it's just continuing to ramp up and up and up. And they're, they're you know, humans, are, we're still humans. <laughs> There's limits to what people can reasonably do while maintaining a sense of balance and mental health. And I think we've passed that. So I think um, that's where we are. And in order for that to change, universities, administrations, faculty, you know, chairs, directors, across the board, there would have to be a, a, a shift to a more humane orientation to all of this. And a focus not only on the outcomes and the productivity and the grant dollars and the this, that, and the other, but like, how are people doing? You can't have a continuously productive faculty or student body if they're perpetually exhausted and depleted. So I think there has to be a really significant reorientation there. Yeah, and this gets me to the point that uh, I think we're failing to capture in academia, and that is how the life of all the, in the stakeholders, vis-a-vis -vis the students, the faculty, the staff, are interconnected and interdependent. I mean, it's almost, to me, you know, approaches that focus on the students without taking into account the mental health and well-being of the professors who are dealing with the students on a daily basis and whose be behavioral uh, decisions or practices influence students' life uh, uh, on a daily basis. Again, it's, it's impossible how you can try to disconnect these, you know, these different people from each other. The other issue is, is, is the issue of scale. You know, generally the, the, the quick answer to try to solve this problem is to appoint more counselors, extend the hours of health service centers and things, but that can never be scaled to the magnitude of the problem that we just discussed, right? And in fact, most uh, uh, counseling and health centers are overextended and stretched to the limits. And if you talk to the students in most places, they know they can get a first appointment and then it will take a long time to get the second one and many people will have to cover it on their own. So I'm just, I would like to get your thought and, you know, I, I think you already mentioned it in the sense that this needs to be a collective responsibility and one that requires collective action. But there are specific ways in which uh, we could have sort of a community-based approach to, to handle you know, the scale of the, to be able to manage the scale of the problem? Oh, I wish I had a fantastic answer for that. I don't, it's, it's hard for me to imagine or envision that in the current academic climate. Um, I think so a lot of things will have to shift before that happens. Um, certainly greater awareness that this is, a, you know, a common situation like you are not a single alone individual who's struggling this is like a you know all of us are having or most of us are having a very hard time and so having that conversation is the beginning i think 
Um, I think it can help too if universities are better integrated with the communities around them, because of course universities don't exist in isolation either. And there are resources and things like that wherever they're located that, that can be of help. But I think really until the focus of higher education turns a little bit away from metrics. And I don't know how that's going to happen because that's where the money is. Um, but that's, that's really what, what needs to shift, but we can do what we can with what we have, right? We can't just throw up our hands and say, it's hopeless. We have to have those conversations. I think faculty can actually have a big impact. As you said, that faculty mental health and student mental health is absolutely intertwined. And as faculty, as they're comfortable and not everybody is, but to talk about these issues and maybe even their own issues, um, you know, in an appropriate way with students that can also help normalize that, hey, this is a community issue and that we're all dealing with and we can all strategize to find ways to make it better. You know, I think that, uh, you know, more investments on training and educating people about mental health is also important because just to, you know, training in terms of how do you manage your own issues, but how do you recognize when people around you are actually going through some mental health challenges? Because it's not so trivial. Right. It's also not so trivial if you're a faculty busy with writing and grants, you're locked into your office. Although, you know, you know, walking through the labs, I could usually tell who's in a good mood, who's not. And people could often can often tell me that from the way I walk, they can predict my mood. So it's just amazing how these cues are around. And uh, so the other part is, I think, as faculty, you know, generally, we, you know, the expectations is that you should be able to manage this, but you never receive proper training to do this. Right. I had the chance recently to take a first aid mental health course, and it was really an eye opener. During the course, you have to take many role plays mm -hmm. where you're encountered with a situation of somebody with a bipolar disorder, planning suicide. And it just struck me how ill-prepared most of us would be to face a situation with somebody and what to do to make sure that this person gets the right advice and is put on the right track and you know, uh, and, and get the support that they need to, to do this. So I think there, you know, there where I see the opportunity to scale in, in sense of, you know, getting us all trained in how students and faculty and staff to manage your own issues, but how to take care, you know, look out for the people around you. If they disappear all of a sudden, they're not attending in the meetings, they're not coming to the usual events that you need to, you know, to pay attention and attend to. So in that sense, I'd like to transition. You mentioned the issue is of, you know, that, uh, you know, being vulnerable and sharing your vulnerability as a faculty or as, as a leader in an institution is an important step. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not so easy, you no. know, it's not, you know, I, I had the experience of writing a few articles about my, my own experience in terms of uh, some of the challenges I faced and reflecting on my early career as a faculty, but it took me about uh, 10 months to a year to, to, to have the courage to, to be comfortable talking about it and to be comfortable publishing about this. I know that you've gone through the same experience. So I was just curious, it would be nice if you could reflect and tell us your experience in terms of, 
being able to to be comfortable with those uncomfortable conversations and sort of share your own personal feelings and vulnerabilities. Yeah, absolutely. And I should start by saying I'm very aware that there that this is all bound up with privilege. So an assistant professor who is not yet tenured is probably not, I would imagine, be comfortable, would not be comfortable sharing this kind of stuff. It could legitimately could impact your career. And that stinks, but that is true, um, depending on how it's done and what university you're at and all that sort of thing. But um, so it was not until I had tenure and job security and I was going up for promotion for full professor that I felt comfortable coming out and being more explicit about my own struggles. And so that, that is real. And, you know, the way that this, that kind of thing will differently impact people of different genders or sexualities or or race, you know, all of that comes into play in terms of both the comfort to be vulnerable and how that vulnerability is going to be interpreted by other people. So with that in, in mind, um, for me, I, I knew I couldn't write the book about eating disorders that I wanted to write without disclosing my personal history because it was relevant to how I was engaging the questions and my interpretations and things like that. So knowing that that was coming out in print, you know, I was like, everybody's going to know about all this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I started, I don't talk about it a lot in my classes, but my students certainly know because they read segments of my book and I do mention it here and there. Um, so I've gotten a little more comfortable with it over the years, but again, it, it's, I completely understand that that's a function of my privilege as my status as a, as a full professor now that I, I have a lot more latitude to do that than somebody else might. Yeah. I, I like some of your tweets. Maybe I can read a couple of them and I just want to maybe your reflections in the moment when you wrote some of these. Okay. So don't assume people are okay just because they can get things done. Reminder that just because you you can be productive doesn't mean you don't struggle. Yesterday was a dark day for me, too early to know how today will be. It will pass, just putting it out there to normalize it. What helps me is reaching out to supports even when I want to hide. I mean, I think those those statements I think are very powerful and can clearly reflect the statement of, of mind you were in it at that time. But, you know, for somebody who reads them and going through the same thing, they're, you know, they're truly therapeutic. So can you just tell us, when, you know, what, when do you feel like you have to put it out there, you know, and just share it? And when do you feel reluctant not to do that? And or you're, you're very comfortable now in sharing everything. Yeah, so I... I... I don't share everything. I'm not like a huge tweeter, but, um, but the times when I do share things like that, I think, you know, it's when I recognize that, you know, I can be struggling with depression, which is something that I deal with and I can be having a really rough time and I'm still getting everything done that needs to get done. You know, I, over the years, that's a skill that I have. I get stuff done even when I feel awful. And I think from the outside, that can be perceived as, oh, she's got everything together. Look at her. She's like a hyperproductive, like all this kind of stuff. And I think it's important. Yeah. I just think it's important for people to know, like, just because I'm getting stuff done doesn't mean that I don't 
feel horrible or that, you know, I'm not struggling or really wish I could just crawl back in bed for the day. But, you know, um, and I think that's true of a lot of people in academia. I'm certainly not the only one that we've developed these skills to kind of keep going, even when we feel terrible. Um, and that can be misrecognized a lot. So I, in those moments, I just thought it was, you know, hoped it would be helpful to somebody else to, to know that, you know, sometimes yeah. people are really struggling. I call it sometimes we learn to fake it until you make it. <laughs> and, you know, we have a tendency, the culture of, uh, of, of using overwork to mask, you know, these concerns that you have, you get busy with work. And I like that somebody once said that, you know, we don't learn from experience. So we learn from experience only when we pause to process our experience. Oh, and, that's and in academia, we tend to, to, to be, you know, constantly busy that sometimes we don't have that time to process and this hyper competitive environment. So I, I want to move a little bit on the positive side to end in terms of what can be done in your paper. But Yelena, I think you wanted, you had a question? Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, your openness is really inspiring, uh, especially to students. And I was wondering, what kind of experiences did you have with your colleagues when you are so open about uh, um, your uh, uh, about your life, really, and tweeting like this as well? Yes, it's interesting. So the first time I presented, or first time I kind of put this stuff out there with my colleagues was at a workshop. We have something called the ethnographic theory workshop. And I was workshopping part of the book when I was writing it. And um, it was the first time some of them had known that I had some history, but didn't really know details or anything like that. And so I had given a chapter of this book to people to read. And I was very, I was nervous about it because I just didn't know what to expect from people. And it was faculty and grad students. Um, and people were incredibly supportive they were very supportive and said how much that they appreciated having something like that put out there in an academic setting. And it, st it started, we had a really great conversation about a lot of the issues we're talking about here as well. Um, so it's been positive, at least the one, things that I know about have been positive um, from, from colleagues. I think in large part because a lot of people relate to it. Yeah. And, you know, my experience when writing the articles and many of the emails I got is, you know, 80% were, you know, thank you for speaking up. I've been through the same thing. And it was actually a conversation opener because many people not only share their challenges, but also their coping mechanisms and many mm. expressed, you know, their interest and willingness to work together to try to do something about this. So I mm. don't think that, uh, I think, in the, you know, we're too scared to open up and talk because of the reactions of the people, not realizing that, uh, as you said, you know, that, that at, at the individual level, people are very supportive and willing to, to engage. Uh, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's just the hyper busy and busy in, in a work in academia that people just don't make the time. I mean, when you meet somebody in the hallway, you say, how are you? The expectations say good and move on, you know. <laughs> and uh, if you were, uh, you know, if you were to try to express stress, anxiety, and pressure, the type of responses are usually okay. Maybe you need to work hard. Maybe you need to focus. 
maybe you need to you know show some flexibility it, it never gets to a point where somebody really has the time to listen and and, and, and you know look at the, at the individual it's, you know how to help beyond these but uh, and I think that's something I call it the busy life of academia and, and, and there is a huge price at the individual and the institutional level for that. So I'd like to get into your, 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 your paper on uh, these hacks for yeah. cultivating and sustaining mental health and emotional wellness. So some of them are, so what are your favorite ones? I nice. have some. I do have some favorite ones. I'm looking at the paper right now. So, so um, building networks and is super important. So not just within academia, I think for me anyway, building networks outside of academia, people who have nothing to do with academia don't really care about what paper I am working on or, you know, we have different kinds of connections. Um, and that has been extremely helpful for me just for, you know, emotional support and, and companionship and all that, but just a reminder too that, Academia can feel so all-encompassing. It is its own universe, and it can be hard to remember that most of the world doesn't live in that universe. <laughs> they live outside of it and don't care that much about the things that we are conditioned to put so much emphasis on. So I, ha I have found that to be very helpful. Um, and another one sort of related to that is the setting boundaries that is, I think, perhaps the most important one. And it's so easy to say, set good boundaries, but that's very hard to do in practice and to know like where's the appropriate boundaries with students, with grad students, with colleagues, with work obligations, with other things um, and finding a balance. And I think, again, for me, it's I just have to continually reorient myself to life is not work and work is not life. Those are two different things. And they're, they're of course happening simultaneously, but, but work is not the all end all be all of, of life. And it can easily feel like that in academia because there's no end to stuff we could be doing, right? There's always more stuff to read or more things you could write or think about. So setting those boundaries for yourself around, hey, this is work and I'm putting that over here and here's the rest of my life and cultivating meaning there as well is super important. I completely agree, but I think you would agree that it's, it's, it's a daily challenge. Yes. You know, for yes. academics because you have so many strings on your neck and, and I think I found it in one of your... Uh, in, in one of your tweets where you were talking about your excitement about starting your sabbatical. <laughs> yes. only, only a couple of days later to tweet that I'm busier on sabbatical than during a regular semester. Yep, it's true. <laughs> and and, and it's sort of, it, 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 it doesn't end, you know, when you move even, you know, you talked about pre-tenure and tenure, you know, there are different types of challenges and that, that arise at different uh, time points. You, I, I think setting boundaries, you know, I, I can speak for myself, it's, I've learned it, you know, but it takes, you know, you have to make sacrifices as well and you have to accept them in terms of, you know, reducing work and you have to realize that at the end of the day, if something happens to you, it's only you and your family. Right. You know, unfortunately, so you need to, you know, self-care and taking the time to for yourself is, is very important. You 
I, I was curious about, you talked a little bit in the beginning about this, and, and in the paper you talk about telehealth and teletherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, how it, 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 it is, is this something that is available in your institution? And I was curious about to what extent this is working or effective with students. And, you know, because a lot of people are, you know, when it comes to seeking help, or talking to professionals, it, it takes a lot of courage and there is reluctance. And so I was wondering whether this telehealth and teletherapy could be a way in between, you know, to help people take one step forward in that direction. I sincerely hope so. It's brand new, like within like two weeks ago, I think they instituted it. So it's brand new. I don't know what will happen yet, but I can imagine for students, I mean, this could be a huge benefit, assuming that there are enough providers that can, you know, be, be active in whatever system they're using. Um, Because in student health, you know, there's a long wait to get in, you have to go to the student health, and then there's concern that somebody might see you and all of that. So this way, telehealth, I think will be um, a big benefit for the students, but but it's brand new. So I don't know yet. It will be interesting to follow um, development in this area. I think, you know, I would, again, uh, we can like to thank you very much for this uh, thought-provoking conversation and uh, for for taking the time to be with us today. I would just like to give you, before we move to the QA session, maybe just a a couple, you know, if you want to say, you know, for those people based on, you know, your experience over the years, you know, what advices do you want uh, to give to people that, you know, not necessarily students, faculty, with respect to taking care of themselves and mental health issues. Yes, I would, first of all, I would say take it seriously. Um, It is not a sign that you are not cut out for this work um, or that there's something, you know, awry with your intellect or anything like that. Take it seriously. It's something that needs attention. It's one of those things that if you don't attend to it, it will continue to get worse. It won't just go away. So the earlier you can seek some support, the better. And just to continue to remember, like I said, work is not life and life is not work. And there's meaning outside of this system that we're embedded in on our daily work lives. And I would like to end here by, you know, saying that we've discussed that the magnitude of this problem is huge, but we cannot certainly wait for others to do it. I, I like what Ronald Reagan once said, we cannot help everyone, but everyone can help someone. So take the time to reach out. Back to you, Galena. Thank you so much for such insightful discussion. Really interesting. Okay, so I would like to start uh, by uh, going uh, to your paper. So you write that in academia, mental health concerns are generally framed as personal issues. And you also write that while individual factors are certainly important, such a focus obscures the ways in which the current mental health crisis itself is exacerbated and even generated by the cultures and practices of contemporary academia. So should there be really a large emphasis on the environment to take some kind of preventative approach? And how can we recognize to intervene when possible? Yeah, so I mean, I, ideally, yes, there would be a lot of changes that would happen in academia that's that are perhaps unlikely to come about anytime soon. So what can we do, given that those structures are probably not going to shift 
quickly by any stretch. And I think um, some things that, that we talked about in the paper have to do as faculty members, we do have a lot of uh, control or say over what's happening in our own courses and what kinds of course policies we put into place and how we, um, what kinds of workloads we're expecting from students and what kinds of flexibility we might have for different kinds of situations. So, you know, I think in the, in the, the domains that we have some input into, we can de definitely make a difference in terms of the kinds of cultures we're cultivating because classrooms have their own cultures, whether it's a big lecture class or a graduate seminar, there are, you know, norms and expectations and, you know, general, um, general views about how things should go. And so I think faculty can make a big difference there. And that communicates to students about, you know, what's, what should be taken seriously and what's valued. So that's, that's one place. And unfortunately, we just have to keep working with those other structures and doing what we can to change them from the inside. And how does the environment outside of the immediate academic environment contribute to maintaining mental health and well-being? Yes, I think it's really important to remember that what's happening outside the university is deeply affecting students and faculty. I can say in the United States, you know, there's been a lot of political stuff going on over the past four or five years, and there's been, you know, racial incidents and all sorts of things happening that directly affects all of us in terms of our sense of well-being, different people in different ways, right? Um, so we have to understand that and we have to, I think, make some room in our classrooms for acknowledging that that is a stressor on people and might be impacting how they're, how they're doing. Similarly, you know, as I said before, universities don't, are not in isolation and they are embedded in communities. And so helping to, as best we can, make links between university services and community resources or making students aware of, I mean, I know as a student, I wasn't very aware of what was going on outside of my university, but that, you know, we, we're in towns or cities and there's other resources that, that students can maybe access. And so that can be another, another way to help um, bolster uh, mental health. Um, what Sorry, go on. I was just curious, you know, you, you stated uh, a few times, uh, you know, and I share your, you know, the, your position in the sense that, you know, we're unlikely to see the change in academia. Mm -hmm. And it uh, frustrates me as well. You know, what do you think it would take to create this sense of urgency? Again, when we talk about the magnitude, when we talk about it, it doesn't take a genius or any special mathematical equation to, to figure out the impact mental health and people and how it impacts the mission of the institution and the quality of education. Uh, I think, you know, in, in, in other areas in industry, people have been able to translate this into dollars and then people felt a sense of urgency. I, I, I don't know if you share the feeling, but I think here, this is one to the problem that in a sense people can see in numbers, how does this translate into ranking, into quality of education, into uh, success of the students? But also, I think in particular, when you talk about, you know, the the students are, you know, will be in the university for three, four years. Mm -hmm. So, they, they, from a university perspective, I think they see the problem as just managing, right? You know, and these people will 
not be our problem anymore or this. But when it comes to the staff and the faculty, you know, the change has to be systemic. It means changing the value system. It means changing the incentive structure. It means, um, you know, accounting for this in all aspects of life because these people are here for 10, 15, 20 years. And I feel like nobody wants to take the time to, to see, okay, it's time to make those changes mm -hmm. because everyone is either busy and I don't see, you know, even the people at the leadership being immune from those stressors, you know, oh, right. if not, they probably have more. So I think we'll have, I agree with you in the sense that we all have to start ourselves and changing what we can change and what the power, what, you know, what we have power to change within the way we educate and, and train and mentor students. But also I think we will have to work out and figure out some sort of innovative way to push the ways to push the system to act. Yes, I completely agree. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that the way that pathway to doing that is to speak their language, which is the numbers, right? And so we don't have the, the data, as you mentioned earlier on, we don't have data solid data about faculty mental health and what kind of impacts that has on productivity or, you know, collegiality or, you know, any of those things that, that go into making a successful academic environment. And so I think we do, we need that um, so that we can start to make those arguments in a, in a persuasive way. Thank you. And to finish up, I would like to ask, what kind of organization hacks are your favorite? Oh my goodness. Okay. Organization. That's a big one because as we all know, you've got 50 different things going on at once and trying to keep track of them. And so I mentioned in the, in the article, I've been using many, you may be familiar with Gantt charts. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a tool that many people are familiar with, but there are some websites that, that make it very user-friendly. And so I have found that very useful for just plotting out what I have going on and I can see where things are stacked up too, too much and I can try to what I can space out. Um, so I find that super helpful. And I think just staying on top of, you know, prioritizing things, um, having a clear sense of what absolutely has to get done today or this week and what can wait and what I can say no to which is so hard for me to do. Um, so I, I get it. And especially earlier in your career, I remember feeling like I can't say no to anything because it's like, I'm trying to get tenure. So I have to say no to every, or yes to everything. But um, getting to that point where you really can know what your own limits are. Um, but I would say the Gantt chart is, is, has been extremely helpful for me. So I recommend something like that. There are other offline versions of, of um, journal type things that you can use that help you just keep track, visualize um, what you have on your plate. And sometimes for me, that's been really helpful in acknowledging like, whoa, okay, I'm really overloaded. Or in a month from now, things are going to be awful. I need to figure out how to, how to sift some of that away. Excellent. And where can our listeners and viewers uh, find more information about your work and also your latest book? Oh, great. Yeah. So I have, um, there's my university website, but I'm not a fan of that one. So I will <laughs> direct you to my other, my personal website, which is just www.rebeccalester, all one word, dot com. 
Um, and that has information about me and my research and my book um, is linked on there as well. So that's, that would be the, the place to go. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been truly an inspiring discussion. <laughs> thank you so much. This was really, really great. Thank you very much. Thank you.